0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Geraldine Gutefant. Today, I'm thrilled to host Joseph Sassoon, a professor of history and political economy at Georgetown Center for Contemporary Arab Studies. His research focuses on political economy, economic history, Iraq, Iraqi refugees, and authoritarianism. In today's episode, we'll talk about his most recent book, the Sassoon's The Great Global Merchants and the Making of an Empire, which was published in 2022 by Pantheon Books. The book traces the rise and fall of the Sassoon family, taking readers from Baghdad to Mumbai, Shanghai, Hong Kong, and London, among many other places, as we'll discuss shortly. Joseph Sassoon, it's a pleasure to host you today. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, and thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure.
1: So my first question is about really the the genealogy of the book, how the book come, came into being. It's a little bit different from your previous publications. It's a bit more personal in some ways. There's a little bit of personal history, not so much, but it's in the background. So I wonder if you can take us to how this project came about and also perhaps how it relates to your other works, because at first site, it looks quite different, but, but I, I understand that there are some overlapping themes, and I'm curious as to how your previous research and fields that are not in family history have informed the project.
0: You're absolutely right. It's really not related to my previous books on Iraq, authoritarianism, uh, dictatorship, which I have spent a lot of time, secret services. Um, and I actually never had, as I mentioned in the preface of the book, never really was interested in writing the history of the family. But a pure, by pure coincidence, I was in Oxford University on a fellowship, and someone by the name of Joseph Sassoon from Western Scotland wrote to me a letter um, asking whether we're relatives. Uh, one thing led to another. We spoke to each other on the phone i ended up visiting him in western scotland where he has lived all his life and i got intrigued and then i thought if i'm in oxford i would look at some archives in oxford and london Um, but what really triggered it is finding this incredible trove of archive at the national library in jerusalem and here you are absolutely right i mean Working on the arch- I was the first academic to work on the archives of the Ba'ath Party that was taken out of Iraq. And in both cases, um, I think there was a lot of similarities in the sense of archival work that um, I had no clear idea what the book is going to be, if there was going to be a book. And in both cases, I just kept reading the archives and taking notes, um, and suddenly, I realized there is a story to be told, um, and which made it very, very exciting. Then afterwards, research also in other places such as India, uh, China, uh, Britain, of course, with its many archives, all added to that.
1: So I actually want to return to the topic of archives later because I want to make sure we really give the reader a sense of who the Sassoon's were or the listeners a sense of who the the Sassoon's were first. But later on in the conversation, that's one thing I really would love to discuss, which is what do you do when you have such an abundance of archival materials? Because I feel like every archival project has its own challenges, but I'm guessing that in your case, the issue would be that you had so much. So I want to make sure we talk about the Sassoon's first and then talk about more the process of writing the book later, but let's make sure we return to that later. Um, So what I would like to ask first is, who were the Sassoon's that you write about in the book so beautifully? Um, And how did they came to be the Sassoon's or as some some people know them, the Rothschilds of the East? And maybe uh, this moniker is something we can reflect on together a little bit. Um, And so maybe we can start with Baghdad, which is the place that the family originated from and their later journeys.
0: So, the history of the Jews in Baghdad dates back 2,500 years to the Babylonian uh, exile. Um, As far as I could tell, the family could trace itself definitely hundreds of years back in Baghdad, similar to many other Jewish families. and that was their home. I mean, there is no doubt that this was their homeland. This was their language. This was everything uh, that, and and we see that seventy years later, in in the strong connection to Baghdad, they were part and parcel of the Ottoman empires, which lasted more than four hundred years. Um, they the the David Sassoons who is the founder, his father was what is called the nasi, the president of the community, the tax collector, which in our days call it the minister of finance. But each state, each province, such as Baghdad, had its own governor and its own kind tax collector slash minister of finance. And they changed. Um, and the family lived there for and, and continued to leave after the departure of, of David Sassoon. Um, you know, there were many erroneous about anti-Semitism. There was no anti-Semitism, uh, first of all, at that time. Um, and second of all, David Sassoon, the reason he left with his father was really there was a corrupt governor who was trying to embezzle money from wealthy families, and the way he does it, he did it, was just um, arrest a member of the family, ask for a ransom, you pay the ransom, um, the governor releases the hostage, um, and he did it once, and the father realized that this is not a one-shot, it's going to be repeated, maybe with other children. So he and the son left, all the other members of the family stayed behind. And I guess that's my connection. I'm a descendant of one of the siblings of of David Sassoon. Um, but Baghdad continued to play really a very, very important role in, in their uh, history and trajectory.
1: So maybe one thing that's worth saying very explicitly is that your family, when, when David Sassoon and his father left Baghdad, your branch of the family stayed and you, your family was actually there in Baghdad, uh, if I'm not mistaken, until the 1970s.
0: We almost closed the door <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> on the Jewish community. I mean, yes. By the time we left, oh. I don't know how many really, but I, I think that in, in the late 1960s, I think there were about 3,000 Jews left. Um, and that kept dwindling in nineteen seventy, seventy one, seventy two, seventy three, 71, 72, 73. Um, and today, I think, actually, there is only four left or five. Uh, elderly members. people, I would assume. Very elderly, most of them except one who is in her early 60s.
1: Oh, uh, that's that's actually quite surprising because I know that in communities that have been pretty much uh, yeah. depleted of their Jews, usually it's the, the ones who remain are, are very old. So yeah, that's interesting that, that this woman stayed behind. Um, so also an- another interesting thing to note is the fact that your branch of your family stayed in Iraq, I I guess to some degree allowed you to write the book in the first place because it connected you to the language that David Sassoon spoke and wrote, which wouldn't be the case for the Sassoon branch that moved to India um, or England later on. Uh, so we can you reflect like a little bit on the perhaps the language? Sure.
0: So, so the language is really an important part. Um, all the Jews in Baghdad spoke and still speak it. I mean, among us, if I met a friend in London or in somewhere else from Baghdad I would speak to them in Baghdadi Jewish dialect now the difference is during that time and actually even with my father they learned to write it because it's it, it's a combination of really of three languages the Baghdadi spoken which was a Jewish dialect it's a Arabic, but it's also written in Hebrew. So unless you know all three, um, you're not going to be able to decode it. So someone, a a Jew from Cairo, would have tremendous difficulty in deciphering them. Um, And that became, yes, a challenge. And I assume that those archives lay there at the National Library in Jerusalem for a long time. And used and digitized and organized. Now they are beginning to begin put some organization, um, because the number of people using them are, are relatively small.
1: the The sister family got lucky to have you, <laughs> to have a person who had the linguistic skills and the their archival skills to do that project. So truly, there was no no better person equipped to, to do the project. Thank you. Uh, so let's talk about David Sassoon. The book, you know, it's a family history, so it's filled with mm-hmm. fascinating protagonists. But in my opinion, the, one of the people was most interesting is the story is really the, the founder of the Sassoon dynasty. Uh, really interesting character, someone who was very rooted in his own tradition, Iraqi Jewish tradition, uh, very pious. He remains very connected to his religious heritage, even through his travels. Uh, someone who instilled in his children an um, uh, incredible work ethic and we really run launched this dynasty that lasted a little over a century so could you tell us a, a little bit more about who he was um in, in all his scholars and Wonderful details, and where he went, and how he really started this this dynasty, and and perhaps one last question related to him, which is connected to what we discussed previously, which which is his, his experience as a refugee, which is something you discuss a little later on in the book.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, he's not the first was not the first merchant to leave or escape from, you know, first of all. Borders were open. I mean, so people came from Aleppo, went to the Gulf, went to Iran. Everything was easy. I think what is fascinating is making the first decision to go to Bombay. Um, No family, no friend, uh, no personal contact. And that's really a gutsy move to make that in 1830, take your a wife and two young uh, sons, unpack them and get on a boat for three months. And I must have been... I kept thinking, wow, you need really a lot of courage.
1: (laughs) I have two young kids and we leave abroad, and I can relate to this, and we live in the 21st century. (laughs) So definitely, I can only echo that.
0: But then actually... When I started, I started meeting people, you know, who packed and left Baghdad and went to um, Indonesia. I mean, there must have been even less information because at least India, through Britain, through um, merchants from India and Iran. I mean, I'm not sure how many people went to Java and came back to Baghdad. It seems there was a spirit of adventure, and I guess people went to the Wild West uh, uh, in, in, in at certain points. Um, he gets there. And the next other interesting aspect of it, he, really neither he or his father had any tradition of trading. They were tax collectors, they were bureaucrats, they um, were representing the Ottoman uh, sultan in Baghdad, Um, but they had a a great reputation and they had a lot of contacts, both within the Ottoman Empire and in Persia and, and, and in the Gulf. And obviously he was a very studious person. He started going to the uh, exchanges, watching what's happening. Um, He realized that, you know, when there is a bad harvest in cotton in America in the 1850s, prices are going up and that creates opportunities. Of course, he didn't realize that there is going to be an American Civil War, which, quadruple the price of cotton i guess you have to be at the right place at the right time but then as i say it you know there were millions at the right place at the right time what makes someone l one person out of a thousand make the right decisions um he was risk-averse, I think, because of the background and because of being refugee, having lost everything and starting from zero. And, you know, one of the things that I kept thinking afterwards is this issue about intergenerational wealth and the difference between the first generation versus the third and the fourth. Um, you know... The, the 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 mentality changes depending on which generation you belong to and what your appetite uh, uh, for risk. But he definitely figured it out and figured out also how to use his large family because from his second wife, his first wife died very young after the birth of their fourth child, um and, and then he had 10 children from his second wife who survived. We're talking about That's the remarkable. 1840s and 1850s. Um, and so this 14 sons and daughters, which meant sons-in-laws, really created a small army that can be relied upon in, in, in spreading around. And going back, you know, things were going the right way. Global commodities were going higher. There was the beginning of an incredible um, revival of economy in Europe. And then wars, you know, the American Civil War um, quadrupled the price of cotton, as I said, and open opportunities. Um, Opium wars that opened China, uh, legalized opium as a commodity to trade, um, and all these things. And then the change in technology that was taking place was really, truly remarkable. When you look at the shipping, then by 1860s, the telegraph, all this combined together um, and, and helped. But there is no doubt that he was really, truly a remarkable personality. When
1: one thing you show in the book is that though it was risk averse, it did see the potential of this emerging technologies that you just mentioned. and and the family really seized upon upon them to to expand. That was really key to to their success.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know the shipping business, the shipping was changing because of opium and tea trading and and new ships that are traveled faster, uh, stored these chests in a more efficient way, um, they immediately entered that business. A realization that maritime insurance is so expensive is a really, uh, they entered that business also. All kinds of things. And and I think you're right. He instilled it in his, in his children. Later on, um, after he died, his son acquired the docks in India, because if you control the docks, it's all about not only the access, but also the information about your competitors, what their ships were bringing and taking out.
1: I do want to mention something about Mumbai, because some of the listeners might not be very familiar with the Sassoon's. But um, what drew me to your book is that I I lived in India for a year and I worked with the Jewish community there. And if you spend, you know, even a handful of days in in Mumbai, um, you will see the Sassoon's everywhere. I mean, and you really show it in the book, in particular through pictures, that their presence was so visible, and it and is to this day. And so it's really a testament to the the impact that they had at the time. Though again, because of the later decline of the family, they're not necessarily as well known at the Rothschild. But it, it's hard to overstate how important the family was to the landscape of a place like like Mumbai and to, um, I think, to a lesser degree, Shanghai. But maybe if that's something you you want to talk about and maybe also your experience of, of going to these places and, and seeing the kind of the physical traces of, of the family history and how you, you related to that.
0: Yeah, I mean, the most incredible thing, which was very uh, touching in Bombay, you know, India is a huge place continent, really, but Bombay, which I don't know, has maybe 25 million today, um, it's probably the only city in the world where every taxi driver would know about the Sassoons. They would know about the Sassoon Library, they would know about the Sassoon Docks, and, which is incredible, and you're absolutely right. You see them everywhere. Um, the... the synagogues, um, you know, different places, different things, road names, all this. You, and yes, you're right. The second place in the world would be Shanghai. But, you know, once you leave Shanghai, it's not. I mean, in if you go to Beijing, people, maybe one in a hundred have heard about it. Different if they are special certain age, but not the young ones. While and in Shanghai, because of the building and different things, they have heard about it. Um, and it is fascinating. I mean, one of the things that I really was determined at a very early stage in spite of this vast archive is to go and see these places with my own eyes. And um, it really added a lot. And I would recommend it, you know, if it is possible. It, it, you know, in the beginning, I was reading those. arc, I will give you one example. Their house in Mumbai, and they said in one of the Papers that I was reading, they had a party, I don't know, for 900, 1,000 people. And I couldn't get my head, how could you have 900,000? I mean, but then you go there and you stand in the balcony <laughs> and you realize it's doable. It's now a huge hospital in the heart of, of Bombay and it it is wonderful because you really could see everything and and you know as i was going up the stairs to look for the balcony i suddenly see this uh a, 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 the emblem of the family in hebrew and 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 uh, latin in the staircase i was really very emotional you know because Absolutely. suddenly wow you it's know here. they lived here
1: it's incredible. And I, I want to say that the, the Sassoon Library in Bombay it was actually one of my favorite places to go because Bombay is, you know, a pretty overwhelming city, pretty loud, pretty noisy, wonderful city by many accounts, but a little overwhelming. And the Sassoon Library is this stunning place of peace and quiet. And really I would recommend to any any of our listeners who will we'll go there to really to go to go like we're going to India and, and Bombay especially to visit it because it is such a wonderful place and so well-preserved and a great place to work and study. So um, it, I understand It is that. a
0: true, a true oasis, you know, in the middle of this gigantic mayhem. And by the way, it's going through a major innovation right now. Um, a friend from India just sent me a long article in a newspaper
1: Oh, I didn't realize this. It's going to be even
0: more beautiful.
1: Incredible, and they can see David Sassoon, the founder of the Sassoon Dynasty. Absolutely,
0: State. yes. Um, this
1: standing statue of uh, D- David yes. Sassoon. <laughs> um, so let's talk about globalization, which is one of the central theme of the book, um, because the story that you tell is not only the story of a family, but really how its fate was intertwined to the growth of globalization, which is, you know, in 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 light of. Um, today's events, it's a theme we discuss a lot. Um, and when you read the book, you really get a sense of, you know, the 19th century as this period when many of the things we know today um, emerged. So I wonder um, if you can reflect a little bit on how the Sassoon family uh, were at agents of this globalization process, and also perhaps about what their story can teach us about the promises and perils of globalization.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, there are two fundamentals in business that really haven't changed. And that one, one is networks and two, information. Um, it, It really, they are so basics. And I think at very early stages, David Sassoon and then his sons realized if you have both, you have a huge advantage. Um, and, and that really is part of the globalization. One of the things that we keep thinking, you know, it's only the end of 20th century, 21st century, that we are living the globalization. First of all, when you look back, there is, even at some point, there was a sense in, on my part of envy. You know, this everything is open. Borders are open. People are traveling you know, for months. And what shocked me, finding that they were not just traveling for business, which had its own perils and cost and in time and and, uh, uh, health, but people were traveling also for pleasure and exploring. There is a wonderful letter about someone going to Norway to climb a mountain in the middle of the summer to see you know uh, another one going to Japan and talking about India a woman one of the daughters at some point goes to the desert through Ka- in Egypt i mean it's really truly amazing and i think that sense of the world as a far more open place, is, is much stronger than what we have today. The other element, which really amazed me, in the 100 years plus of archives, there was never the question, should we deal with A or B? Um, because Should we not deal with them because of their race, religion, identity? It never came up. The fact that you know David Sassoon was a pious person, it never bothered him in dealing with all religions, all sects, all identities. And I think that's the true globalization. That's the wonderful aspect of an open world. All they needed to check is could they trust their counterpart, which is absolutely correct. Uh, All the rest is irrelevant, in a way. Um, And that, you know, I mean, I think from that point of view, that globalization is far stronger than our today globalization. Yes, we have better networks and internet and connection, and you're in Kuala Lumpur, and I'm in Washington, D.C., and, and we're talking. But there are a lot of obviously these days of disadvantages because immediately we want to know where we can, you know, put everyone in their own box.
1: And that's something wonderful about the about David Sassoon that you show in the book, which is that um, his openness to the world really really showed through in his philanthropic efforts. This is someone who gave plenty to the Jewish community, but also supported other causes. Uh, obviously was very involved in the in Bombay community and gave to other communities, other groups of people. And it really is a testament to what you just said about, you know, seeing people for who they are and and not having those boxes that I think really are shaping our lives today in Studying
0: the Talmud with a missionary, you know, I mean, that shows you the openness. Um, He's interested in studying the Talmud, you know, and and here is this man who's you know different uh, religion different ideas and yet they find this tremendous spot of friendship um over learning and and understanding the talmud
1: that is fascinating um so staying with the topic of globalization but kind of narrowing it down a little bit I want to talk about one of the main commodities that they traded, which you mentioned very briefly earlier in a conversation with it, which is opium. So how how do they fit within the story of, of the opium trade in the 19th century? To what extent did this commodity participate um, in their success? And also what are the ethical issues that arose in the 19th century that uh, made it increasingly harder for them um, to trade it?
0: Yeah, so the trade of opium really goes back almost 200 before they arrived to India by the East India Company. Of course, the usage of opium goes 5,000 years back in, in both India and China for recreational but also uh, medicinal um, and by the way there are a lot of still in in villages in parts of India for example mothers use it when for their uh, babies when they are teething by just literally putting a, a sliver of of some you know just to calm them uh, their 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 pain um, When they came, they were obviously not in that business. Um, They were very, when they started trading it, they were very, very small players. Uh, You know, one chest here, one chest there. There were one British companies like Jardine Matheson, but also Indian traders that um, were far more established, had the contact. But again, not dissimilar from cotton, not dissimilar from other uh, commodities. They started very small and grow. Um, And uh, David Sassoon, the minute um, that, you know, after the first Opium War ended, he sent his second son to explore China, establish contacts. And it really was step by step that they increased and the more China became open, particularly after the second opium war with all its ports, um, they found a tremendous amount of opportunities and they grew slowly but surely throughout that period until they reached a very, very important um uh, percentage of the trade not dissimilar from other commodities, and so yes, I would say by the mid 1850s, late 1850s, opium becomes a critical part of the business, and there is no denial about this. As I'm, I dealt, I think, with in the book with it straight on, without trying to uh, um, deflate anything. I was quite disappointed that members of the family, particularly towards the end of the 19th century, no one said, wait a second, are we doing the right thing? Is this proper? Um, Aren't there a lot of people getting uh, uh, hurt? None of that at least exists in, in the archives. If conversation took place, obviously I can't. And I'm not trying to defend it or, or portray it, but I would say two important things. One, you have to understand and look at a historical things from the perspective of mid-19th century and not 21st century. The fact of the matter is, until 1909, you could go to any pharmacy in New York or London or Paris and say you have a headache or indigestion and the pharmacist would recommend to you some opium. Opium was quoted in the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal, other financial papers, no different from gold and silver. And last but not least, um, even when the opposition for religious reasons in Britain increased and and there were more cases that was clear that this is very harmful, the Parliament created a commission of inquiry that went on for five years and wrote more than 2,500 pages. I have the all the volumes here. And the conclusion was shocking that this is all exaggerated, that um, this should not happen. And if you were going to ban uh, opium, then you should ban alcohol. And um, having one glass of whiskey is like having a little bit of opium. Of course, if you have half a bottle of whiskey, Um, It's harmful, so having too much opium is harmful. And that was the conclusion of five years of inquiry, including more than 100 medical experts. So I, I have to see it in that view of the time. Having said all this, I don't try to justify it, and I think there is a problem. That they just saw it strictly as a commodity, and that's it. Um, It's it's hard to accept that today, given what we know.
1: Right. What I found fascinating is that there's so many echoes in today's political events because the opium it was related to trade, and it was really a matter of global international relations. And it's interesting that today um, there's some of these issues happening in reverse. I was thinking about uh, Antony Blinken's visit to China recently where one of the issues he, uh, he addressed was um, the the ways in which the Chinese are inundating the American market with fentanyl. And the, the Chinese government, uh, the, the, the Chinese authorities were doing the, exactly the opposite of the 19th century, which was trying to stop this flood of opium coming from, you know, uh, Western and other traders. And and here we see those issues playing out a little bit differently. But uh, one thing I loved so much about the book is that it has so many parallels. Obviously, there are many things that are different, but it, it helps us make so much sense of what's going on today. And it's a way, I think, to give us some broader historical context for looking at things that seem today to be very new but really aren't. So I really want to emphasize this for our listeners that um, I think everyone will find something that they can relate to in um, you know, in today's news. So really, thank you for, for, for writing the book. Um, so let's talk about the British Empire because that's another big theme in the book. And obviously, the fate of the family was very much tied to uh, also the rise and fall of the British Empire. So um, what can the Sassoon family teach us about British imperial rule and how much uh, were they able to to benefit it and 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 how how so
0: Yeah, I mean going back to the status of refugee and again trying to understand how David Sassoon thought about it in 1831 You know, here is an immigrant family arriving in India with no one, no contact. There is only one superpower, one major empire at that time, without a shadow of doubt, and that is the British Empire. And he basically decides to throw the lot with the British Empire. He announced that they're going to be British. They're going to be loyal to the empire and its colonial and imperial policy, and there shall be no doubt about it. And they stick by that. Um, And I think it helped them tremendously in the first 50 years uh, or even longer. I think part of the issue of the rise and demise is that they capitalized on the rise of the empire of the tech. They knew how to adapt to technology. And the paradox is that their loss or demise is actually for the same reasons, but on the other side, they didn't understand that the empire is beginning to weak after world war one that things are changing worldwide, that nationalism is on the rise, that colonialism is on the decline, um, that commodity trading will be replaced by this humongous uh, industrial revolution that is going to sweep, that you know, so it's really fascinating how they managed to capture that at the beginning, but refused to accept it in in the second part. I guess not dissimilar from people who believed in Britain that the British Empire will last uh, uh, forever or that Britain will continue to rule India for a thousand years. At some point, they felt... You know, forever and ever, and 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 there were British uh, officials, as we all know now, that really thought, you know, it is it is part of Britain, and and they misunderstood that.
1: So we'll talk about the decline a little more, um, a little later in the interview. But I want to stop here about the the story of a character who I thought was absolutely fascinating was one of the few women in the book. You know, there are mothers in the book, sisters, but really it's largely a story of men, I think, because of it archival findings of course um, but there's a woman who really stands out here um, whose name is Flora and you call her in the introduction the first woman to run a global business in the 19th century so um, before, because she was really uh, one of the main characters before the decline I want to stop here before we talk about the demise of the, the Sassoon's War and um, what you can tell her, uh, t- sorry tell us about her and also uh, the challenges that she faced very much by virtue of her gender within her own family
0: yeah, I mean, this was one of the biggest surprises and pleasures in, 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 in working in the archives. You know, the, there were a couple of things that had been written beforehand on the Sassoons. And she's mentioned in two lines, three lines versus her husband. And when I started going through the archives, Suddenly, this woman emerges as a giant among all those uh, uh, men. Um, and yes, you know, afterwards I'd done some research. There were a lot of matriarchs at the time worldwide, but not a CEO for global trading firm. And she was really, truly a remarkable woman. In 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 the innovations she inserted in the business in the way she run the business, um, and you are absolutely right. Her story is not dissimilar from what we have today. That the men at the in the family were angry, were upset at her success. I mean, they just could not stomach the fact. And the the most stupid reaction to her success is all the time the same sentence. How could a widow with three children run a global business? (laughs) It's not, wow, this amazing widow managing to run a global business while she's having three children. It's the exact opposite. And the more success she has, the angrier they became, and the more shenanigans and and um, uh, all conspired against her. Until unfortunately, they managed to to topple her. And I really strongly believe that she deserved the whole chapter because she is a character, and and her story really continues also. Um, she spoke seven languages. She was an incredible woman who knew about the the, the Talmud, the Torah. She was the first woman to address uh, a Jewish college, which ordains rabbi in England. Um, and I thought it's wonderful that when she showed up to 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 give the uh, speech, rather than thank the organizers for inviting her she blasted them and said let me understand one thing you say that there hasn't been i'm I'm very qualified are you saying that you couldn't find for 70 years seven decades one woman who was qualified i mean You know, you need a lot of guts to do that.
1: (laughs) That's wonderful. One, One thing that I found very moving about her is even after she was really pushed to the side pretty, you know, forcibly and really shamelessly, and it must have been very humiliating for her, she still cared so much about the family. And she really, you know try to uh, make sure the family would remain tight. I mean, it seems like she was a, a peacemaker yeah. within the family, even after everything that happened to her, which, I mean, I think it's a true testament to to this remarkable personality. I'm, and I'm so, so glad that you were really able to delve into her story and, and give her the, the, the credit that, that she deserves. I think it's a, a wonderful addition to the book. So let's go back to the demise of the sisuets, um which was, You know what we were discussing previously, because one aspect of the story is also this process that you describe in the book of uh, anglicization. So you really show how, um, with the passing of time, um, the 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 generation, the individuals that make up the family are changing. Their identities are changing. The way that they relate to their Jewish heritage, the way that they relate to the the empire. So I wonder if you um, could tell us first a bit more about. Perhaps the, the the differences between those who remain in India, for instance, and the family members who moved to England, and how their identities shifted based on this geographic move, and then um, if you could tell us a bit more about this um, this really relentless pursuit of becoming English and how that played out in their lives and uh, what results that, that led to both positive both positive and negative, because they also achieved great success in British society, but it, it came out of cost, as you show in the books. So I would love to hear a little
0: more so, about that. I mean, apart really from Flora and her husband, all, all the core family moved to England And here is the important difference. It's it's not just Anglicization and the desperate. Again, being refugee, they wanted to be accepted in India, which is normal, natural, same going to England. I think the issue was really not only becoming Anglicized. It's becoming part and parcel of the upper class and close to the royal family. And I almost think of it as a club and that club has rules and one of the rules is if you are really an aristocrat a british aristocrat you don't work okay so now (laughs) you're in this this club if you're in this club well you don't work what do you do you go hunting you go shooting you have estates in scotland um, you have beautiful houses in London, in the countryside, and they tick, tick, tick everything. And you spend the money and um, you get titles. And they did all this and they received titles. So not only they were accepted in, in, in as, as British or English, but they were accepted in that upper class, close to the royalty And that was the heavy price to pay, where they felt that they really have to stick by the rules, they go out, they, you know, and I quote this wonderful letter that I found that two members of the family, write. you know, we went to the office at 11 o'clock, uh, at one o'clock, we went to the club for lunch, and at three o'clock, we went to uh, horse racing to bed. And I kept thinking, wow, what David Sassoon must be thinking in his grave that his family members are working two hours a day, having worked six days, 14 hours. Uh, and that's really the change. I mean, and, and the amount of money that was also spent in order to compete and to be part of this club was really truly dramatic.
1: And you mentioned I, I thought something I thought was so interesting was this obsession that many family members had with horse racing. Horse racing clearly was a big part of the of the you know British aristocratic lifestyle, but especially as it was embraced by the Sassoon yeah, family. Yeah,
0: and continued with even Victor Sassoon, who headed to China and Shanghai and built a skyscraper and got out of all the commodity pri- trading, and yet horse racing was uh, the the best and most important thing in his life. Um, yeah, I guess. You know, definitely one generation says we are British and you have to like horses. By the next generation, you're betting and owning a lot of horses.
1: So let's talk a bit about anti-Semitism or anti-Jewish animus because uh, you made it sound that as if it wasn't, I mean, that difficult for them to ascend to this pinnacle of of power, really. Um, but, But you do show in the book that, you know, there were still, they, it was very well known that they were Jewish of Iraqi descent. And so how did that also play out in um, their relationship to the British aristocracy and also to this shifting identities that you, you talk about in the book? How much, how much is this part of the story that you, you tell? Yeah, I mean,
0: you're absolutely correct to point uh, this one out. I mean, anti-Semitism was rampant at the end of the 19th century in, in England. I argue in the book in a way that they got treated better than let's say the Rothschilds for a number of reasons. One, because of anti-Semitism, the fact that the Sassoon's never traded and lent money, um, excluded them from that money lender image of the Jew. That's number one. Um, number two, part of this looking down not only at Jews but at foreigners in general is the class structure that you know we, the British aristocracy uh, does not like did not like nouveau riches. the ones who come from nothing, create wealth and become successful. Okay, you're wealthy but you're not part of our club. Well, they couldn't say this to the Sassoon. The Sassoons were back in Baghdad, all these titles and importance. And then in India, they were known as the merchant princes. So that also worked in their favor. The third aspect um, that worked to their benefit is unlike the Rothschilds or a lot of other Jewish families that moved to Britain, there was never the issue of um, loyalty. You know, one of the things that threw at the, the, the Warburgs, the, 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 the uh, Rothschilds, is where does, where does your loyalty lie? Uh, you have a brother in Germany, and we're at war with Germany. You have a cousin in France, and we are at war with France. And there was always this issue that was used against them. Again, that really did not exist for the Sassoons. I mean, World War I came, they were not impacted by it. Um, In fact, 13 members of the Sassoon family participated in the war. Some were killed, some were injured. Um, And that played, um, uh, again, uh, uh, to their uh, benefit. So I think those reasons, that doesn't mean that people did not write about them or made comments, but it's interesting. I think there were more criticism of the Prince of Wales. Hmm. Why are you spending so much time with these foreigners? You know, it's natural that these foreigners want to spend time with you but you're going to be our king you shouldn't be spend time um and of course their generosity and hospitality they knew how to work it out i mean if their relationship with the prince of wales started really on, on, upon his visit in Bombay and, you know, with their tremendous hospitality of British officials and they knew how to build relationships.
1: And they threw great parties, as you showed the it's book. The book. Every generation of Sassoon was great absolutely at organizing parties. And very parties.
0: amazing weddings, yes.
1: <laughs> they did a, a great job. Um, so one last question about decline, and then we'll talk a little bit more about process before closing the conversation, which is um, what do you think they could have done differently? So obviously you talk about multiple things, both at the individual level and more structural level, which is uh, with the end of the British Empire and you know a series of war, global wars, uh, civil wars, Within India and China, obviously the the, the world changes entirely um, at the, at that point in time, and and then you also weigh in um, individual individual factors such as the one you mentioned, the fact that you know many members of the family didn't have such a great interest in the in the business anymore. So all of this combined to really lead to the the fall of of this this dynasty. Uh, but what do you think? I mean, this is a bit of a revisionist history, but what do you think are the interval decisions that they could have made that would have changed the, the course of this this family and um, um, prevented the, the this, you know, ultimate fall?
0: Yeah, I mean, they had a clear um, possible, tremendous possibilities in the 1880s and 1890s to diversify. Um, they had the resources, they had the contacts, they had the information, they had the network, and they had the money. Um, they could have done it. The Tata's in India did it. Um, and they talked about it, but they rebuffed the Tata when, he, when, when it was suggested to them to move to, into the steel business. So lack of diversification is, is definitely an issue. The work ethics is really was becoming a problem. And, you know, even with great entrepreneurs like Victor, who also I devote a whole chapter to him and the move to China, which is fascinating. Yes, it is true. He lost it not because of his fall, that there was a Japanese invasion, Pearl Harbor, World War II, Chinese Civil War and rise of communism and nationalization. And yet... There are other Jewish families from Baghdad that went back to Hong Kong, like the Kaduris, and created an empire. Um, it's almost like his batteries run out. You know, he packed and sold for five cents to the dollar and run to the Bahamas um, to spend the last few years of his life. There were a lot of opportunities, um, and and I think that issue that they suffered from is really truly applicable to any family with intergeneration. How do you keep incentivizing the next generation that knows you have the money, that knows it has the means to spend, to continue expanding and diversifying and learning uh, uh, the business? Some families manage to do it very well, others fail.
1: Not so much, right? It's hard to sustain across many generations. Um, um, So, okay, so I said we would talk a little bit about the process of writing the book. We don't have that much time left, but I want to make sure to discuss this with you because It is such an impressive feat of of research and writing. And I want to hear from you about how you managed to navigate, you know, those multiple archives across many continents and how you, I mean, first went through all this material and then how you decided to, um, you know, pick some sources over others. Like, how do you manage such an an abundance of, of documents? And also related to this, I think one of the challenges of writing a family history is that you're potentially focusing on so many actors. So first, how did you manage the, the the flood of documents? And second, how did you decide to focus on sort of characters over others?
0: Yeah, I mean, truly, both in this case and the case that I mentioned about the Iraqi archives of, during Saddam, um, the, the first few months, I tell people it's like swimming in a sea. There is no direction. I have no agenda. I'm just reading and taking notes and taking notes and beginning here and there to put kind of an index on my computer of material uh, that I find. But I have no idea what's going to happen. And, and my recommendation is the more you dig, the more, you know, suddenly that sea becomes almost like a swimming pool where you can control um, the knowledge in, in, in it and, and see a picture. And once you decide then where that take you, then you have a story, I mean, to, to, to write it around a number of issues look, this book could have become so much more in in different ways. I wanted partly the business, partly the the, the refugee, the globalization, the Jewish aspect, the the exposure of flora as a woman and what it meant for a woman to be in business and part of these dynasties. Um, I mean, I guess... You know, the more you read about these things, the more you realize uh, they're all connected and and um, archive work is fun.
1: It is. It is. Absolutely. And so I, I imagine there's a lot you left out because, you know, it's a 300 page long book, but you could have written, you know, many, many tomes. So what are the yes. things that you left out that uh, you would love future researchers to um, you know delve into more like based on your you know extensive knowledge of the archives are there areas that you didn't really cover in the book that you think would be of great interest to to researchers who are interested in the Sesto family yeah
0: i mean there were a lot of material you know about the social aspect that could have been you know some social historian with a good knack of 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 social history um could find a uh, work there. I I would say one of the things that I really really missed um, is having any emotions, uh, all, all their emotions. You know, there were not the letters that there were these tens of thousands of correspondents. Yet no one was expressing how they felt. Whether about um, relationship, whether about opium, whether about politics, whether about family problems, that is definitely missing. In fact, someone suggested that I write a fiction book.
1: <laughs> I feel like you had enough to do with what, what, what was already at your disposal. Um, so, one question: What? Well, 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 I want to hear more about your your. Current research projects, but I wanted to ask if you've seen that exhibit at the Jewish Museum in New York. I did, so soon. I
0: did and I gave a talk there also.
1: Okay, so can you maybe tell us a little bit more? I, I just saw recently that this exhibit yeah, is on display a right now. It's
0: fascinating. It really is a fascinating exhibition, and the curators have done an incredible job, I have to say. Um, the focus is really on the two things first, and most importantly on art. Um, collected by the Sassoons, particularly the ones in England, and especially in in the 20th century. Um, second is about architecture of the buildings, both first in India and then in Britain. And third on history, but that is really much harder. But it's a very nice exhibition, and and and. You know, gives really a good sense of of the family.
1: It seems like it would be a very nice compliment to anyone who's, who's reading the book. It would add a, yes. you know some texture too. Yes. Um, so before we part ways, and it's been a really wonderful conversation, I want to hear a little bit more about what's keeping you busy these days. You know, having spent so much time with the as Sissons, as, what are you currently working on?
0: Well, I'm still spending a lot of time with this the last hour. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, am, I still have a lot of commitments on the book. I just came back from a big uh, book festival in England, in Hayon Y, uh, which was really amazing. Um, I have a few things over the next few months, uh, both at the Jewish Book uh, Council, but also in um, book festivals in uh, Delaware, in Miami, and in, in other places. I am beginning to look at things, Um, you know, back in the Middle East. I'm not really sure. I I am. uh, This is the stage of just reading and sussing.
1: Digesting slowly. slowly.
0: Digesting.
1: Um, Have you had a chance to give a book talk in Bombay?
0: i done many talks uh, virtually both in, in all over india bangalore festival i was in jaipur festival in january and gave a book talk about that and that was in itself amazing and i my the chinese edition is coming next month um and the hebrew edition came out last month actually um, and the, um, the 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 there have been many virtual talks also in Hong Kong and 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 Shanghai.
1: Well, good luck with all the future book talks. I'm sure you, you won't get thank bored you, over Frank. the next few months. Joseph Sassoon, it's been such a pleasure to host you today. Thank you for joining us, and thank you thank to you. all our listeners for listening. Have a great day.
0: Thank you.